we're the organization that's going to save save the world. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for God. Um, you know, things take on a whole nother tone. And unfortunately, you know, I think this is where um, a, a lot of the power dynamics come into play for, for what people call today, they're calling spiritual abuse. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover the faith. And we're wrapping up our series uh, called Recovering Faith. And this has been a series about living under the authority of the gospel. And last week, we discussed one of our final application points of living under the authority of the gospel. And that was the unity that God intends for the church to have. We said that unity in diversity on account of what Christ has done is the purpose of the church. Now, go back and listen to episode 16 if you think you can stand to face the challenge to live in unity with folks who represent the other side of the aisle from you. Because that was the challenge. That was sort of the practical application point there. People who represent the other side of the aisle politically, culturally, racially, morally. The challenge is to live in unity with them on account of Christ. Because of Christ, because of, because Christ has brought us together. That was episode 16. Today in episode 17, we're taking up our final topic in this series. Our final application to living under the authority of the gospel. And that is... Let God rule his kingdom. Yep. Let God rule his kingdom. What's the background to that idea, Nathan? I don't know. Maybe Alex knows. Alex, (laughs) what's the background? I'm like, yeah, let God rule his kingdom. That sounds great. What a weird Uh, idea. (laughs) But, yeah, how do we we actually do that? Because, you know, it seems like pretty quickly, um, once we get a group of people together you know, things get messy mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, you know, people are stepping in and say, well, we can't have this, we can't have that. And so-and-so's, you know, really, uh, driving us all crazy. You know, it, it, it just, you know, I think this back to that human institution thing, how do we account for that? Right. Well, something everybody needs to know about us as three failed pastors is that we get together before this podcast to talk about our lives and our failures and our um we don't really talk about our successes much uh, no but we do we do uh, confess our sins and things like that and, and confess our struggles and um and so beforehand uh, alex was talking about some of his sins and so i thought <laughs> no, i'm kidding i'm kidding uh, but yeah. uh, just your background and, and some of the stuff that you experienced you don't have to be i don't know be as specific as you feel that you need to be to tell it but i thought Give, yeah, give it, us it, 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 it does apply, I think. Um, we, we've talked some in the past episodes about uh, how easy it is uh, for human, human authority to try to step in to manage, control. You know, we, we have a lot of different language around uh, these things, leaders. We need leadership. You know, we need to have influence. Um, and, and there's you know, softer and harder terms to do this, but when it gets down to it, um, there's a lot of ways that, you know, I I think uh, people feel like they have to help or manage God's kingdom. And especially when it gets into um, 
established institutions, religious institutions, in this case, you know, within the church or within a denomination or, uh, you know, ministry, um, it's so easy for us to put certain people in roles of authority where we think that's helpful. Um, and coming out of, specifically out of my background, uh, the denomination that really in a lot of ways was, was a great positive, you know, group of people. Um, but there was always this subtle pressure, you know, when you're a pastor, when you're a minister or an organization that you're not just there to support the people within your church. You're also there to, um, help support the organizational structure so that it can continue to exist and continue, you know, to do the mission of God on this earth. And this is how, you know, this is how God is going to um, establish his purposes in the earth is through us in our ministry, our denomination, our church. And so once you add that like extra layer of having this kind of spiritual um, impetus uh, to we're not just we're not just any organization we're the organization that's going to save save the world yeah. you know <laughs> for God um, you, you know things take on a whole nother tone and unfortunately you know I think this is where um, a, a lot of the power dynamics come into play for, for what people call today are calling spiritual abuse um, in that, you know, through our human nature, um, leaders of these types of structures, it's very easy for them to start exerting, not just like, hey, you know, organizationally, um, we have a hierarchy and I, I'm, I'm up here and so I kind of oversee this function and you need to, you know, really kind of follow my lead. It becomes, well, God has put me, put me in this, you know, this higher position. And so therefore, you have to follow, listen to, obey me as if you were listening and obeying God. You know, suddenly these leaders and the structure and everything about it becomes proxy for, you know, what they'll call spiritual authority or spiritual covering. And so that this comes up a lot, uh, some in more organizations explicitly more than others, but it, there's always this underlying tension of mm -hmm. like, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to work in this organization for God, I have to obey these leaders as if they were speaking for God and as if I was obeying God himself. Yeah. And that's, a, I guess that, that came in pretty early. Uh, you know, think about papal authority, the idea that the Pope speaks uh, as the vicar of Christ. Um, but all of that presumes that Christ is dead. <laughs> I, you know, I hate to say that, but if he's alive, then he doesn't really have to delegate his authority. Uh, I mean, we claim that Jesus is alive. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Um, and that, <clears throat> you know, he's, he's the king. So if that's the case, then why are we his vassals or whatever where where does this idea that we're his um somehow uh, operating as 
delegated to you know by him. Does delegated, delegated authority seems um, now. Are you are you arguing against delegated authority? Well, didn't Jesus say degree. in uh, somewhere in the Gospels, "I have given you authority." He says, "I've given uh, you authority." Yeah, to tread over serpents yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah. help, me, help me understand how it is the case that. Uh, that Christ has not delegated his authority? Or maybe I think you're arguing for there's a sense in which he has, but a sense in which he hasn't. Well, So help us understand. Sure, and, and maybe we're going down a, a rabbit trail, but I'll, uh, I'll try to get us back to Okay. Um, so yes and no. Uh, so if we do something in his name, so I cast out a demon in his name or something like that, which is the context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then it's still his authority. I'm not mm-hmm. doing it in my name. I'm right. doing it in his name. Um, and. And at the same time, that name is accessible to everybody. So it's not so much a hierarchical authority, one person over another, but that everyone has equal access spiritually to um, the name of Christ. And mm-hmm. so, and we're going to talk about, about that. And certainly people, I think, have different roles and giftings. Again, we will talk about that. But uh, it's this idea that I have a positional authority. So let, let's make a distinction between uh, a positional authority and a demonstrable authority. So positional authority is do what I say because I said it, right? Because uh, uh, I'm the boss. Right. Because uh, I'm, I'm your brother. Right, right. Exactly. I could be wrong and I'm still right because I said it, right? Uh-huh. It, it, gives, it makes me think of the uh, that famous interview uh, with Richard Nixon and Nixon is is defending his behavior in the wake of Watergate, and um, and at one point the interviewer says, I can't remember his name, uh, but he says, "Wait, are are you saying that the president can do something illegal?" And he says, "No, I'm saying that when the president does it, it's not illegal." <laughs> so that's this idea of of positional authority, uh, and that's what we don't get. We don't have um, we don't have the right to, and and so that's the the thing. Uh, now the other the other kind is the kind where we stand on maybe maybe the right word is moral authority, and we do have that in His name. So, but that's self regulating. So you can't in Jesus' name harm the innocent, or you know you're not going to call down fire from heaven to destroy the weak and marginalized because they're in your way. Right? There, there are things that there are checks and balances built into that because Jesus still retains that authority. As if we operate in his name, but we go to do something he does not authorize, guess what happens? It doesn't work. Which means we don't get this, this independent right to rule on his behalf, but it is always linked to his supply. You mean so when you say still it doesn't work? What, I think when you say it doesn't work, I think what you mean is it doesn't actually bring Jesus' kingdom to bear in the world. It may work in a worldly sense. We may work with worldly sure, sure. methods, and we may say we're doing it in his name, and it may actually work to grow an institution, right. grow a church, whatever the case may be. But you mean it doesn't bring God's kingdom. No. I, well, I, I, say, say, yeah. say, I'm saying if, if the disciples went out and Jesus said, I give you authority to tread on serpents and all that, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, oh, good, I have authority to tread on on babies and developmentally disabled people. And so now I'm going to cast them out. I mean, we can do things. God's going to allow us to do things within our own power. I'm saying he's not going to provide the power 
to do things that he's not commanded us to do. And if our, if our assumption is that we are only going to do what he gives us the power to do, then it's self-regulating. If we say, well, we're, only, we're going to do things within the range of human power, sure, we can just go nuts. We, we'll, I mean, obviously, all the abuses and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll get into that. Um, but here's the... So when I say that there's no delegated authority, I'm saying that, that Jesus hasn't... If, if we think of authority as a particular reservoir, that there's an amount of it, right? A volume of authority. Delegated authority is usually when there are percentages of that reservoir that are given away. Okay, so if I'm going to delegate authority to somebody, then I'm choosing to not micromanage. I'm just going to abdicate. Okay, but in the, in the case of Jesus and his kingdom, that even though, and we're going to talk about it, that he raises up judges, the equivalent of judges, but, but that office of the judge is dependent on God's empowering and if it doesn't, and if the God doesn't show up to empower, then it doesn't get done. And so he retains the, the volitional discretionary rights, even as we are operating on his behalf. Okay. So now you're going to give us the background for it that comes from the book of Judges. Right. Yeah, that's it. So um, maybe everybody remembers that time. And, and this, is, this is relatively new to me. It's old and new to me. So I'm hoping that's what it's going to be for some people listening. Okay. So most Bible readers, people who are somewhat familiar, uh, if you went to Sunday school, I don't know how much we can assume anymore, but um, are familiar with this idea that um, when Israel asked for a king, right? So there was really an extended period, maybe, what, 400 years, where Israel didn't have a central authority over them as a nation. God brought them out of Egypt. He led them across the sea to the mountain, gave them mm-hmm. the law. He led them through the wilderness yeah. with his presence. Yeah. He brings them into the land. Uh, and, and Under Moses. In, Moses was there. Right, until Joshua. Joshua. And then Joshua takes them into the land. But even Joshua's role is more a military chieftain. Um, and uh, Moses' role was somewhat of an arbiter. But there was no cohesive, like, now we're going to go this. as You know, we're going to do this as a nation. Nobody had that role until... Right after the the uh, judgeship or whatever of Samuel, and you know his sons don't really follow in his ways, and so the the Israelite elders they come to him and say, "You're old. Your sons don't follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have." Okay, so here's this: they had a long period, say up to 400 years, when they didn't have a king, and all the other nations did. And when they when they said, "Give us a king to lead us," this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. The Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, um, in this moment, I've always, I've always thought that God is, is speaking almost metaphorically or something, right? But I don't think so. Um, you know, he, he's saying that these people have rebellious hearts and they need a king over them and stuff. But it's not just that. I, it is that God had set up a political structure where he immediately directly ruled over Israel okay um, and they time and again rejected him so he was reigning reigning over them through this covenant with Moses um, and what he expected was that he would be their immediate king 
And, and he says, as they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day. So when he brings them up out of Egypt, Exodus 19, he says, hey, you know, come and, and if you obey me, you'll be my treasured possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? That's the goal. That kingdom was going to be reigned over by God directly. And that's what began to commence until this moment. Mm-hmm. So there's a system of governance of governance where God is directly reigning over his people. Um, and yet it doesn't exclude human um, mediators uh, of some sort. Moses, uh, Moses Joshua. Joshua. These right. people are leaders. Right. Right. They're leaders. They uh, are empowered by God to lead. He's endorsed their leadership. Uh, I remember when... Uh, Joshua is, is succeeding Moses, and God says, "I'm, I, you know, I'm going to work on your behalf so that the people will see, and they're going to fear you like they feared Moses." Right. So there's this, but there's a divine endorsement. There's a divine empowering that goes with this person, um, and along with it had to come this accountability, because you're really counting on, on God to supply the the power, on Him to do the um, enforcing. Um, and um, the enabling. So, um, and maybe like like uh, like Moses. I'm trying to just help myself and others understand. Mm-hmm. Like, because I can imagine someone thinking, "No, come on, I don't know, I don't get it." Moses had a position of authority. Right. You're saying it's not so much the position, but rather the power that was at work through him mm-hmm. that gave him the moral authority to be the leader. Right. Um, and so Moses had to stay in the flow of that power. Right. And like striking the rock story, the story there are stories about times when he failed. Exactly. And uh, God's power didn't flow. He disobeyed. Right. God's power didn't flow. Right. Yeah. I mean, his power was challenged at least twice, right? Uh, uh, so you had the rebellion with Korah. Who decides? Who decides who's right there? God did. Right. Moses is like, everybody with me. How many How many with Korah? You know, there, there was no You're talking about this is where the, no the, vote. Earth, the earth opened up and people fell exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. So, you wonder who's in charge? Okay. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. A classic know? case of Elijah. I mean, I always skipping ahead, right? But right. it's a, just a classic story to illustrate the point, right? Right. Uh, you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we're going to determine whose uh, side God is on. Or right. Who's on God's side. Right. Yeah. I, I do have a question here. Uh, sure. Going back to my own history and uh, being from a Pentecostal tradition where mm-hmm. uh, it's very common that they will take uh, a person that the group perceives as being anointed is usually one of the terms that they bandy mm-hmm. um, and that this anointed person is obvious obviously to you know everyone in the group at least at the moment mm-hmm. been blessed by power you know the power of the Holy Spirit the power of God to mm-hmm do stuff and so then they kind of push push this person up into a position of authority if he hasn't already taken it um you know some traditions will use words like you know now he's you know our apostle for you know our our churches or whatever and they give him this special and in their eyes they they see this person as having some kind of like god endorsed power or something right sure so, yeah. What do, what do you say to those people? Well, I would I would say that they're not wrong. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they were wrong. That uh, you know, Paul does speak of his apostolic authority, and, and we talk about that, um, and that we should submit to one another. That there's not some sort of a we really have to be defiant toward each other, or 
sensitive about it. But um, we have to understand that the nature of the covenant isn't obey uh, dictates, okay, but it is live out the gospel, it is live out faith. And so uh, Paul says something about his role, okay, so Paul oftentimes would assert his apostolic authority. He would say, hey, I've got, I've got authority from, from Christ. I'm his, I'm his emissary. He understood that, okay? But he also understood the purpose of his authority wasn't to structure a movement to kind of coordinate the collective efforts of other people. Okay, that's when we, when we get it to be, we get to have a problem. Going back to this idea, what's the point of the church, right? The point of the church is this mutual love, okay? So, man, that's up to everybody. Are we going to do that or not? Okay. Now, obviously, the shepherds of the church, people who are elders and stuff, they're, they're going to call out people who are, are bringing in things that are destructive. That's fine. That's good. That's helpful. That's a shepherding thing. But it's when we begin to say the purpose of this church is to solve world hunger or, you know, leverage X number of missionaries onto the field and stuff. And we begin to to speak in behalf of the group and and to decide things for the for the sake of other people that now we begin to take this kind of lordship role as opposed to uh, a shepherding role um so let me give you paul says about his own role he says not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith that you stand firm okay so what were what were the Corinthians in Second Corinthians one twenty four? What were to what were they accountable? Paul, Paul saying, uh, well, Paul is saying they're accountable to their own faith, right? And if if Paul had said, you know, hey, do do what I say because I said it, he would be a lord over their own faith, over their faith, wouldn't he? I mean, what did Jesus say about leaders in his movement? Right? Servants, right? Yeah, he's saying, hey, you know the. When the when the people of this world um, rule, they they push people around and, and they make them do what they want. Your point, I think, and then then I, what I'm hearing implicitly is your response to Alex is that yes, there are these gifted, spiritually gifted people that we are right to follow, but then we put them in this position of authority over an organization, and it gets corrupted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They they begin to give arbitrary dictates more than trying to build people up and point them to this personal experience of following their faith. But yeah. because and they can't to afford preserve. to do that. Yeah. Case in point, the apostle comes, you know, the quote unquote apostle comes to the the church and says, the Lord has told me that we need to build this, you know, $10 million building uh, in mm-hmm. order to, Glorify him and further our ministry. So I need everyone to give a hundred bucks. You yeah. know, <laughs> this right. happens a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, if that, once that becomes normative, then, you know, this guy can say God told him to do anything. And they can cover over scandals because they have to preserve and protect the, the ministry, its well, reputation, the Well, and within that bubble, you know, they've been given this implicit authority to do whatever they want in the name of God, quote unquote. Right, right. But if we if we presume, hey, this this role is just to shepherd the flock, to feed God's people, to point them to the gospel, to um, found new churches personally. I mean, most of Paul's job was that he was starting new churches, and most of his authority was over those churches he'd started. 
And his authority really wasn't like um, telling them to do things organizationally. Um, if, you, if somebody can find somewhere in Paul's letters where he tells the whole church to do a thing. The whole Christian as, church, as, the as, universal Christian well, church. Well, no, or just a congregation. Oh. Okay, you and you in Ephesus, you need to go and um, tear down, you know, Zeus's temple. Or you need to go and, and feed the poor in this neighborhood. Or did, do we find any dictates in any of Paul's letters? Or are they pastoral? Are they about how individuals should live out the gospel and how they as a group should just protect their unity and their peace? Um, it seems those are the kinds of, of things that content, not yeah. we as a movement or you as a congregation need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, and that kind of feels like it is bringing things full circle back to the, you know, <laughs> the crux of this entire series, which is the gospel is the basis. Mm-hmm for uh you know for life and living and so in the same way we say the gospel is the basis for spiritual authority right. within the church right and every christian has within them the means to discern whether what they're being told is from god that you know if this doesn't line up with the gospel as you received it paul would tell them that i, I you know in, in galatians and um, in first john you know uh John says, hey, that which you've heard at the beginning, that's true. Follow it. You don't need teachers. Wow. Missed opportunity, John. You could have said, just listen to me. Yeah, I'll tell you what to do. And he says, no, nobody has the right to supersede that message you heard at the beginning. Not even me. And um, it's just tough. How did we get to that point? Uh, Here we are in the New Testament and John Mm -hmm. is saying that. Let's go back to where we were. We took took you down some uh, tangents. No, I went there. Uh, God... The judges, Moses, mm-hmm. okay, then, oh, we were at Samuel. Yeah, Samuel. yeah, yeah. So, uh, and God says they rejected me as king. Uh, and one thing that we notice really throughout this early narrative of Israel is that there's this guy hanging out. He's hanging out with them. Like, this isn't some sort of a, you know, they're just unspiritual, so God rejected me as, I mean, so the, the people rejected God as king, but but that he was literally there like walking around, okay? And and I think that we missed that. Um, and he was very pedestrian, literally pedestrian, like he walked where he was going. Uh, God did, okay? Um, and so he, he is named the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Um, and the word angel, we read that and we think a, a particular species of being, of being like a seraphim or whatever, but the word just means messenger or, or sent one. Uh, and wow, when we start thinking sent one, then Jesus comes in the book of John and says, I'm the sent one. Okay, so he's the, he's the sent one of Yahweh who goes and is, he went up from Gilgal to Bochim in uh, Joshua 2. Okay, so in the book of Joshua, this is before the people that asked for a king, right? And He's, this guy's walking around. It's not Joshua. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land, and I swore to give your ancestors. Who says this? The, the messenger of Yahweh. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the, with the people of this land. You shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And he also said, I have not driven them out. I will not drive them out before you etc. Okay. So he speaks this. Then we get into Josh, Judges 6, the people mess up again, right? 
I mean, in Joshua, we see him again in Joshua 5. He's the commander of the Lord's armies. Okay. Uh, but then we get to Judges 6. Um, or that one was it. That was in Judges 2, by the way. Sorry, I said Joshua, but it's Judges. Um, we get to Judges 6 and... Um, just the Israelites disobeyed. They'd been under the, the thumb of the Midianites for 40 years. And it says, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of uh, Midian, he sent them, and, and every translation I can find says a prophet. Okay. It says, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Um, and then a little bit later, like just in verse uh, 11, it says, but the angel of the Lord came and sat down under uh, the oak in or in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezeri, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, so we have this man of this prophet in verses seven through ten, and then in verses eleven through twelve, we have the angel of the Lord. Now, if if we see that as prophet, we we kind of think this must be two different people. Okay, but that word there is just man. He sent them a man uh -huh. who said, uh -huh. this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. So here's what I, in the context, it looks like this is the same individual. And he appears as a man. And he goes, and then he, he, he seems to walk over there. You know, he came, he came and sat down in, uh, under the oak. And Ophrah. So this is a very pedestrian picture of a man who is speaking with the voice of God on behalf of God. All that to say, um, and you see it again in Judges 13, when um, this being is announcing the coming of, uh, or the birth of uh, Samson to Manoah, Samson's dad. And this guy comes and they ask him his name. And he says, why do you ask my name? It's beyond understanding or it's wonderful. And then this guy disappears into a flame of fire and, and Manoah and his wife, or Manoah falls down and says, oh no, we've seen God, we're gonna die. All that to say that, that God is, was very present. What's, what's noteworthy, at least to me, is that as soon as, they, as soon as Samuel gives them a king, these appearances stop. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't, he doesn't really show up again until the reign, I think, of, of Hezekiah when, and this is, you know, hundreds of years later, when the Assyrians are right at the gate, and it says, and the angel of the Lord went out from the temple and destroyed 250 Assyrians that night. Okay, so this guy just moved into his house. He's like, you know what? You guys don't want me to be king. I'm just going to hang out. Okay, um... But all that to say is, is that when we choose human authority, when we say, I want, I want somebody that I can see, and I want him to call the shots, it comes at a cost. Um, and so Isaiah 1, 23 through 26, Isaiah is calling out Israel. He says, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come up to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy, and I will restore your judges as at the first. This is in Isaiah. Isaiah. This is much Isaiah later, prophet. Right. 
And God's saying, I've got a plan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to remove your sin, your sinfulness, and your sinful leaders, and I'm going to restore the system of judges. Right. So this, this system of, of human authority, this kind of implicit human authority that came with kingship, was inherently corrupt, and we just see it time and again. Okay? Uh, so there's this Davidic king, obviously, who uh, is coming, and we could talk about him more, but that there is a there is a kingdom coming where God is the king and David is the king. How will God and David both be the king? And, and we could look in Ezekiel where God says, I'm going to shepherd my flock. And in that day, there will be one shepherd, even David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think, mm-hmm. well, wait, how will God be the shepherd of his flock and David be the shepherd of the flock? Uh-huh. You know, uh, but but there's this there's this David coming who is God. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and woe to those. Woe to those who would presume to take that kind of dictatorial authority over God's people now that David has come. And so that's this is what I'm urging and encouraging is, is that if we look in Scripture, we will see that there's an approach to leadership that is pretty different from what we default to. And what we default to is what the nations have. You know, we look around, how do organizations run best? Well, you have to have a board of directors and a CEO, mm-hmm. right? Ooh, you mean a board of elders and a senior pastor, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, because that works. And, and they set the direction and they say what the organization is going to do and they raise the funds and they, you know, they schmooze the patrons and it all works. But is it the kingdom? Is it worth defending or having if God's plan has been to restore his judges as at the first, that, that there will be leaders, but they are going to be people who are empowered by God to lead and that they are only leading on his behalf and that they aren't trying to create this um, centrist kind of organized motion forward, but they're just carrying out this, you know, um, simple dictate. Yeah. Well, they're carrying out a service. They're seeking to build others up. They're seeking to build up people's faith, Mm -hmm. not to build up an institution. Right or their reputation or their platform. I mean, to, in today's language, it's, it's about my platform. And I want, I want to have a national platform and my, my organization, my church that I lead, you know, is going to build that for me. Right. Well, and think about Gideon, right? So under Gideon, what does God say? Get together as many people as you can under this banner. Is that how he... Is that what he tells Gideon to do? Uh, he says, like, reduce it down to 300. Right, right? yeah. Right, He's, it's the opposite. You, you just need to start paring it down. Just keep paring it down until you get to laughably low numbers. Now you're ready to go, right? That there's this kind of a humbling, that there's a, a really a reliance on God, and that without that, it's not legitimate um, authority or legitimate work. And that's challenging. It's challenging to me and I think to anybody, but... It, but we have to have a challenging standard um, or we're going to be subject to this kind of drift. Um, and so in, in the book or whatever it's going to be, the judges aren't kings. They have spiritual authority instead of positional authority. Just like Gideon's leadership was contingent on the power of God or Deborah's on her ability to prophesy. So Paul based his authority on God's power at work in him. Okay. So... When Paul talks about his leadership credentials, um, they aren't these 
really impressive kinds of things, right? That he says he demonstrated among them uh, the marks of an apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Yikes, right? And and it gets to your uh, your experience, Alex, in the sense that you know if there's this expectation that there's power demonstrated that God's there. That's I think that's good. I think that's a move in the right direction. In my experience, it's been more. We like this guy. He makes good decisions. He has the right education. He's come out of our group. He's charismatic. He can command a a crowd and a following. Yeah. And I've always wondered. Charismatic is not the same as spiritually gifted or spiritually mature. I always wondered what gives us the right to declare someone an authority over other people. You know, we as a group, what gives us legitimacy as a group? So let's say several families decide they're going to start a church and they do and they get a, a certain number of numbers and they begin to appoint leaders and all of that. But what gave them the authority to appoint those leaders in the first place? What gave them the authority to become a group? You know, if God's not in it, then where does this authority come from? So I do think that there has to be some sort of demonstration of God's hand and his presence there if we're going to claim some sort of spiritual authority. But that spiritual authority isn't for commanding people to do something that's not just something that doesn't flow out of the gospel. Every person is being taught by God. And that seems to be an essential truth of this this, uh, covenant that we're under. So, uh, yeah. Uh, And I think that if we understood that spiritual authority is dependent on God's power, I think we would be a lot slower to try to control people through other means. You know, and, and that's... So that's my concern and in, in saying, let God rule his kingdom. You know, Paul speaks of his authority, but he, he didn't need people to agree with him in order to have that authority. Right. He didn't need there to be a vote. Um, he, uh, so let me give you this second Corinthians 13 verses 2 through 3, and then verse 10, Paul talks about the kind of authority he had. Now, this is, he's kind of getting serious here. He's not, he's not playing, okay? He says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. Now, what's his job, right? Whose agenda is he trying to bring people into? Or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you but is powerful among you. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. Okay, so he has this authority. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 21, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming, but I will come soon if the Lord is willing. And then we'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking about what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Now, how does this little um, bald head, crook-nosed, knock-kneed dude plan to come and bring a rod of discipline to a whole group of people, right? 
he seems to have understood that Jesus is going to enforce his word. That if he just, you know, when we talk about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, and uh, there's this call to discipline this guy who has his father's wife, right? And he says, I want you to all gather in Jesus' name with my spirit there among you um, and throw tomatoes at this guy. No, <laughs> you know, shame this guy. Uh, no, there, there, he says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his soul might be saved. All right. Um, that seems to speak of some transaction happening on a spiritual level that Paul expected so God is ruling his kingdom in the sense that he's the one enforcing it. Um, and if we know that, then we stop resorting to those elementary powers, those elementary principles of the world to control one another. It doesn't mean that yeah, I don't think we would use this kind of spiritual authority lightly, but, all, but I'm saying that if, if we believe that God is really here, he's really in our midst, we don't need to, to use such all this political maneuvering you know, the, the things that we resort to oftentimes to have sway over a group of people are things like ingratiation, manipulation. We, we go to whole conferences and stuff to talk about gaining buy-in, articulating a compelling vision and, you know, rehearsing it again and again. And, um, and all of these things are, are there to try to gain compliance of people for some agenda subset that, it's just not, I don't think, at the core of the gospel. And so that can become dangerous and abusive um, if we expect people, like in the, in the case of some of the Pentecostal movements and others, to just defer to what I say because I used to have authority. You know, instead of, instead of us saying, well, are you calling us to, to the gospel? Are you, you know, are, are you bringing people on to point to follow the gospel? Can I see a direct line of provenance between what you're saying and what the gospel is about? Okay, if not, then you, I don't care who you are and what you're saying, you're, you're obviously wrong, right? You're, you're, you're misleading God's people. Um, but if someone comes and says, hey, you know, I've been following Jesus and he's given me, he's authorized me to lead in this way and they, and he points out you know, you all are suing one another. And I know that the world says that that's okay, but this, this needs to stop. And Paul never just arbitrarily said, do it because I say so. He gave the gospel connection. And then he said, now stop. <laughs> right. And then he's, and then he expected the Lord to enforce that. He is did. Your point. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say the truth. And we're going to see how the Lord Jesus as King operating in our midst deals with people mm -hmm. is this yeah. why he says is this why he says in, in that obscure passage about the lord's supper this is why some of you are sick and dying yes yes i mean peter says uh pass pass your time now as he says um uh, he's talking to those who are, who are come in and, and he says um since since you have a father who uh, judges impartially pass your time here in fear now, he, he's not saying be afraid of going to hell. He's saying that God is, is judging his people now. Mm -hmm. he's, I mean, in that, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says some of you are sick and, and some of you have fallen asleep, he says if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be judged by the Lord. But when we are judged by the Lord, it's so that we won't be condemned with the world. 
So mm-hmm. there's this discipline that comes in the church that's this penultimate judgment, right? It's not the final judgment. It's a penultimate judgment that's happening. And I think that as God gives authority to people, I think that he gives them the power to um, minister that judgment, to minister that discipline. I, I think that that's part of it. And But the thing is, is if somebody claims to be able to minister that discipline, they better be able to back it up, you know? And that's what I'm saying is it's self-regulating. Somebody can come and claim to have spiritual authority, but if they can't minister that kind of discipline, then, you know, Jesus hasn't endorsed them. He, you know, his hand is withdrawn from them. And like you'd mentioned with Moses, here's Moses. He's been faithful and meek the whole time. Then he strikes the rock and it doesn't work, right? Um, and obviously does because eventually. He, because he didn't do exactly what God told him to do. Right, you're right. He right. stepped outside of that that kind of meekness um, of, of leadership. But all that to say is that I... When we realize that God is still, he's in charge. He hasn't taken his hand off the wheel. That we aren't responsible for the outcomes, um, just how orthodox our church is. So this is this is my primary concern. Because I think that our belief uh, oftentimes, and ever since really, ever since, ever since the Reformation, our belief that we're responsible for the orthodoxy of our church has caused so many splits it has caused so much abuse, you know. Thankfully, we're not drowning people anymore, mm-hmm. um, you know. I mean, I, and so that's an indictment on the Reformation. I mean, forget about you know the Catholics burning people at the stake over uh, heresy. Uh, you know, here you had these these Protestant reformers who were like, hey, you know, we we need to get away from all this Catholic uh, authority, and and then they just immediately start drowning the Anabaptists. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, you guys are terrible. But but we justify that because we think it's up to us to make sure the church is is pure and orthodox, and we have to get rid of heresy. But you don't see that in Scripture. I mean, hey, yeah, they point it out. They say that's false. But even as Paul's talking to Timothy, he's like, it's just kind of you telling them to shut up. You know, it's you being patient and instructing them. But guess what? They're there next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And Paul's, Paul's doctrine of the church is that we're unified despite our differences. We're unified in Christ. So we don't, uh, we don't divide over, um, uh, over these doctrinal differences right. that we tend now to divide over. Right. And if you feel like you have to go to church that is completely orthodox, then you're going to be very lonely. You, you know, no, you don't mean the literal orthodox church, right? Right. <laughs> Although I do know somebody that you know, he just kept changing churches, changing churches. He couldn't find it. He finally ended up in an orthodox church, which was really weird. And then he just went off the deep end and left his family and everything. And I'm like, what is uh, happening? I know here? some wonderful orthodox church people. Sure, nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, but. It's almost like bloom where you're planted because you're not going to find a, a better right. So last time, widget. right? If last time we would say, "Hey, stick out with the church, even when it's uncomfortable, even with your if you're surrounded by people you don't particularly like," because hey, that's family. <clears throat> the uh, the other my other counsel, uh, what I would caution people to do is stick around in the church even if it's wrong um, on a lot of things, <laughs> and pray for them and be faithful to speak the truth in every opportunity that you have. And if they decide, hey, you need to leave, well, then that's your permission to go. Uh, Otherwise, you don't have to be in a church that's doing everything right. God's not going to fault you for going to church on Sunday with people who are heretics. He's in charge of his own group. 
And so um, if we don't believe that, then we're going to begin to resort to these tactics of control and pressure on each other. And people will become essential. Uh, human leaders will become essential to the movement. And we can't allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to be expendable um, because Jesus, only Jesus is the essential one. Yeah. We don't need a dynasty. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would add to that, because um, I've dealt with this personally and other people mm -hmm. that have dealt dealt with this, there is times when you do need to leave a group of people. Um, and I, it's not easy mm -hmm. to discern when that is. Um, and so I, I would encourage people, if they're in a situation with any religious group or any church where they it has gotten to the point of what I would call abuse, right? Mm -hmm. um, either relational, emotional, verbal, you know, any of those types of things. And so reach out and get yeah. help, uh, professional help, if, if you're ever in that kind of situation. Sure, yeah. Well, and, and it's that abuse that we're trying to head off. Uh, you know, those who, uh, and what's sad is, is that the abusers really at one point were very serious followers of Jesus. Uh, and there's a systemic problem that's there, and and they become twisted by the belief that it's up to them to make sure that this church is is faithful, um, or that it's always making making the right choices, or that everybody in the group is believing the right things, and that can become a very poisonous thing. Uh, it's we, we have to stay above the elementary principles of the world if we're going to be the church. And we can only do that if God is really here, if he's really going to do something. And so that's, I guess, the maybe the walk away here. Kent, we're almost out of time, but you had a question. Oh. Uh, do you want to touch on that? or? Oh, I <laughs> uh, did. You're right. How does this relate to Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand? Yeah, as I was reading your, your manuscript, that was like bringing things together for me. I mm -hmm. thought, oh, yeah, Jesus came and said, the, the, the time God has arrived. Yes. Yes. Here. Repent, for the it kingdom is. of God is at hand. Yeah. And so you were putting it into the larger biblical narrative. Yeah. God will become king again. He is. And in, mm -hmm. the, and in the arrival of Jesus, God was becoming king again. Right. Yeah. And... Jesus called himself the Son of Man throughout the Gospels, um, and he's uh, he's associating himself with a with an Old Testament tradition. That phrase wasn't used much. It was used a lot through Ezekiel, and I still don't know why Ezekiel used it so much of himself, or God used it so much to speak to Ezekiel. But I do know that it's used in um, Psalm eight, and it's used in uh, Daniel seven. In Psalm eight, it speaks of this uh, Son of Man who is made lower than the angels, but then has been crowned with glory and honor. Right, uh, and the church very much saw this messianic condescension, this descent. The Son of Man has been made lower than the angels, and now has been crowned with glory and honor. In Daniel seven, it's you know Daniel's talking about these kingdoms, these worldwide kingdoms that are arising in succession. These four kingdoms, and then, and then he talks about in the days of those last kings, that that fourth kingdom. Um, he, he says that I saw one, that the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his throne and took his seat. And, and one like a son of man, like the son of man, came with the clouds of heaven. Now, a lot of times people read that in Daniel and they think it's, it's Jesus is coming down, right? But it says, 
but he was and he was led into his presence and uh, and all and authority and, and honor were given to him okay and so here's this son of man who is he's escorted into God's throne room to sit on God's throne so he's ascending right and and Jesus in John 7 says who could be worthy of that except the one who first came down right and so he that the kingdom commenced there and so when Peter says he has ascended to the right hand and has uh, poured out what you see and hear. He's received the promise. He says, what was that promise? Well, it goes back to all the way to Abraham. Okay, there's this promise that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God didn't mean some general blessing like they'll be happier, right? Health and wealth for all. God had in mind a very specific blessing that all nations would receive. And, and so Peter says he has, he has ascended and, and he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. You know, he's received the promise. Paul says it's the promised Holy Spirit in Galatians 3. Okay? And he's poured out what you see in here. And this is, the, this is how the kingdom is, is coming specifically. You know, we talked about Moses. And, and there's this moment in, in um, Numbers, I think, 21, where, where the Spirit is, is shared Right? The, the Moses had God's spirit and he's leading by God's spirit. Here's a spiritual authority, but now it's just it's shared among these 72 elders, right? And and Joshua's upset because these two guys are in the camp. They're not part of the group, right? Because we need to control everything and make sure everybody's in the group. And Moses is like, dude, what's your major malfunction? You know, God gave the Holy Spirit to those people. Why would you be jealous on my behalf if God has empowered those two people who these outliers? With his spirit. I would that every one of God's people had his spirit. That's what Moses said. Boom. Right? And here we are. And so this kingdom has commenced. This this kingdom, why, why did the one there at Sinai not gel? It didn't make, right? The law, it just couldn't, we couldn't keep the law. But now the spirit is poured out. Jesus, King Jesus, has, has received from the Father the spirit. The spirit comes forth in his name. And it is by the spirit that the that this kingdom is administered, right? Jesus directly through his spirit. So, and we walk so by much the there. Spirit. Yeah, there's so much there. We walk by the spirit. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So this is what is really changing people's lives. Right. So Jesus says, there are some of you standing here who will not die until you see the kingdom come with power. Right? Wait. And then in Acts 1, wait in the city, right? Until... You receive the power from on high. And so this... this Pentecost was the right, kingdom coming right. power. When he said the kingdom, when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, he meant three years from now, right? Not some day way out there. And yet the kingdom is still coming. It's it's coming every time somebody turns their life to Christ. And it, it will come with the renewal of all things. And so... Well, good thoughts. Apocatastasis. Let's close with apocatastasis. This is a Greek restoration word. of all things. Restoration of all things. Yes, there you go. Thanks for the Greek vocabulary, Alex. We'll close on that note. Thanks, everyone. If you have questions, email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com.